0: Joining me by phone is, uh, is the, can I say, ever great uh, Tim Keller. Uh, I know your works mean so much to so many people.
1: Oh, my goodness, no. You can't do that at all. <laughs> we, we should have we should have talked about this beforehand. Though I'm very happy that I'm even, you know, even at this stage in my life, I'm still able to write. Yes.
0: Well, you know, you're... I hate to write books and people tell me you you need to write another book. I'm like, no, it's, it's a painful experience for me. And then I read your books and I kind of get jealous because I'm like, man, he strings words together. And as I write for a living and you're just, you're so good at it in every book that you write And this one, uh, for those who don't know, it hopes in time, hope in times of fear. It's, I was from the introduction to the last page, I was captivated.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, my wife and I um, occasionally we actually work together on a book uh, where we actually co-author it. But uh, in every case, what I do, and I did it with this one, is we read the book out loud to each other. Because you really, it, it is so much worse before you do that. Because you just can't really catch the things that, how do I say it, the inelegancies and the infelicities. <laughs> but Kathy actually has said, uh, books are hard to write. And Kathy said, this is the closest you will ever know to what it's like to have a baby, having a baby.
0: (laughs) I can believe that. Now let's get into this one because you, you make a point at the beginning of the book and it's one I've, I've had a couple of professors in seminary mention this and they always sound frustrated when they say it. And you say to the beginning that we, we as Christians spend so much time on good Friday and looking at the cross and we kind of forget, Hey, there's, there's this event with an empty tomb on Sunday and we should spend a lot of time meditating on the actual resurrection, the the one event in human history that actually has the power to to change you, uh, unlike say Caesar crossing the Rubicon or Washington crossing the Delaware.
1: Yes, um, yeah, but there are a couple things. One is actually years ago i I got called on this. Some, I, I can't remember where, but I somebody said, you know, when you present the gospel, you don't you leave the resurrection out. You talk about the cross, and the resurrection is not even there. And I realized, to some degree, it's because if you look at a lot of the traditional gospel uh, presentations, like uh, frankly, like I mean, Billy Graham's Steps to God, uh, the old crew crusade for uh, for spiritual laws. By and large, the resurrection is you know either a footnote or it's not there at all. And by the way, interestingly, I'm looking right at it. Charles Hodge and, and Eric, you would know this since you've done the seminary thing. Charles Hodge, uh, in the uh, 1800s, he wrote the the magnum opus, uh, Reformed Systematic Theology, big three volume thing
0: i'm staring at it on my bookshelf right now
1: well okay you know that you look in there, there's like over 120 pages on the cross and four pages on the resurrection wow you go go look it up and we don't really know what it is other than it's oh it's just a kind of like big supernatural miracle sign and we get out we get it out once a year to say isn't it great that jesus rose from the dead but we really don't know what to do with it We really don't know what what difference it makes to the way in which we live. And that's what I was trying to tackle in the book.
0: And yet earlier in in multiple times when I do my Good Friday show, I I make the point that a whole lot of people died on crosses. There's only one uh, that we focus on, and that is in large part not because he died on the cross because of what happened on the third day after dying on the cross. And still, yet we kind of gloss over that. And, and one of the things I, I love about the beginning of your book, where you focus on the actual historicity of it, I had to read N. T. Wright's Resurrection of the Son of God. And <laughs> it is, I, I, it's a, it really, it's an impressive academic work. Uh, I, and I, I swear, I, I promise I finished it. And I, I don't know that I actually did. There's so many pages to it. And yet he, he lays out how there really aren't any other religious traditions 2,000 years ago anywhere on the planet that have anything like what the very earliest christians described was happening
1: right and so it, well, that uh he just adds all sorts of layers to it i mean when i was uh when i first became a christian many years ago in the late 60s in college i read a book by a guy named frank morrison called who moved the stone i mean there were some books on evidence for the resurrection but but uh Tom Wright uh, just added so many layers, uh, and one of them that you just alluded to is the fact that basically this isn't the sort of thing that anybody could have made up. Because when you make up, uh, I mean, very often, uh, like Kathy and I like science fiction, so we'll we'll watch science fiction, but so often you can tell that the person who wrote that particular episode or all that was, was getting ideas from somebody before that. It's very, very seldom that things are very original. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Wright is just trying to say, the, uh, for somebody to be raised from the dead, for example, here's just one example. It says the only times you have in any other literature, any other myths or legends, if somebody's raised from the dead, they're either uh, just resuscitated and they look exactly like themselves, right? In other words, like Lazarus. He right. comes back from the dead and says, oh, there he is. Or else he's a radiant kind of uh, you know angelic creature. But the idea that somebody be raised from the dead and so different – that you wouldn't recognize him as the same person, and yet so ordinary that you wouldn't think there's anything weird about him. He says, "Who would have made that up?" And he goes on through and just talks about that until you get, and then of course he talks about the fact that, you know, what would make Jews, who were the last people on the face of the earth, to be worshiping a human being as God? Almost immediately they were worshiping God. I mean, the evidence is that it wasn't like it didn't. It wasn't an evolution. It wasn't like over the decades you know, the, the legends grew, they were immediately worshipping a human being as God, and they're the last people on the face of the earth to do that. What happened? Well, they tell you, and then N.T. Wright says, okay, and if you don't believe them, then give me give me another explanation. And he says, at one level, this doesn't sound like history because historians would say, well, we don't believe in miracles, you know. Right. At another level, it's good history because a good historian doesn't just say, well, it couldn't be. You have to look up for a historically possible alternate explanation to the birth of the Christian church amongst Jews and he says if you don't have one then you ought to at least be open to the possibility maybe you're wrong about miracles. so it's it's pretty powerful and I only spent one chapter on it because I do feel that the the last 30 years or so the, uh, the scholarship has really strengthened Christians hands in belief in the resurrection yes.
0: I think it, it really has. And it's his book was so powerful. And, and you're, I, I have to say, you do a very good job of summarizing it and also highlighting the First Corinthians 15 and the scholarly research we now have on that. And I, I could spend all day on that, but I actually want to jump to the larger portion of the book on the meaning of it, yeah. particularly for yeah. something relevant to us today. Uh, it, towards the end, You talk about justice, but at the beginning, I was struck by something that I've been saying on radio, and you give better words to it, that in the civil rights era, there was a lot of hope in the civil rights era, and now in the social justice era – there's almost like a secular eschatology that we can't have salvation as long as these people who disagree with us are, are still allowed in the town square to debate us. And there's there's a lot of despondency, it seems like, without any hope in the social justice movement of today when the resurrection shows there is real justice.
1: Yeah, I was gentle at that point, uh, Eric, but I do think you do have to be a little careful as an older white guy uh, talking right. about what I see is the difference between. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement, which wasn't perfect, of course, there isn't a perfect movement. But it, to compare that to Black Lives Matter, which is utterly secular, um, where the earlier movement there was a note of forgiveness. Uh, you never saw the the people, for example, you never saw the people who were marching, and who were actually and doing civil disobedience. You didn't see them screaming profanities at the police. You you did you. There was a note of reconciliation and of hope and. It was it was more Gandhian in, in a way. You know, Gandhi, I, I just was looking at that old movie, a great movie right. about his life. And I realized that, you know, he picked up better than I mean, he was a Hindu, but he really picked up the nonviolence thing to say, we're not just being nonviolent. We are we're going to we're going to basically out virtue you. We're going to outlove you. We're going to sit here and do the right thing and we're going to call for justice. But we're going to be forgiving. We're going to be kind. We're going to be loving and we're going to embarrass you in a way. And boy, there's nothing of that. I, I I, do feel it's because the Civil Rights Movement was led by ministers and people who were over, overtly Christians and Black Lives Matter is not. And I'm not saying that Black Lives Matter is is not doing any good at all. I'm just saying that note's gone. And I do think it's dangerous because it, what it does is it doesn't really get, it doesn't win over the other side. And I, I actually there's a book by called A Stone of Hope it's a history of the civil rights movement written by David Chappell. Uh It's a it's a you know it's an academic book, so it's not a you know it's not a page turner. But he basically says that, largely speaking, the the segregationist large, uh, South white people were, were somewhat won over by the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just they didn't just power in with their with their legislation. They, you know, it, it embarrassed people. I, I remember when I moved to Hopewell, Virginia in 1975, all my blue-collar people in my church were white people, and they were mainly in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they had been segregationists. And, but most of them were actually told me they were embarrassed by the way they had pre- uh, treated black people when they were younger. And they, the more they had thought about it was, this this really wasn't right, and this isn't the Christian way. With, So I I do feel the Civil Rights Movement was successful in winning hearts in a way that I don't know I see any hearts being won right now. You? No, it just I, I, feels like I, I see hardening hearts everywhere.
0: I, I agree with you, and, and part of my frustration, and I've I've seen this interaction on social media involving you, is, is I routinely now refer to what you've written about critical theory, and yet you and I agree that there needs to be some level of racial reconciliation in the church. And every time I bring up the subject, well, well you're buying into critical theory, and and it's the, people seem to have gotten so tribal even within the church on the issue. When I I think only Christianity can speak to uh, what's happening in society. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. We're, we're all one people in Christ. And everyone seems to be lost to that message and also to the message of hope, which I, I I don't mean to ramble there, but so full disclosure, earlier today I had to get my eyes dilated and I cannot now read on the page where it was. But at the introduction, you, you mentioned the, <laughs> that hope, the, the Greek word, the, the English word hope doesn't really capture the, what right. hope means in the Greek, in the Bible, of profound certainty.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, uh the Elpis, the, the Greek word really means confidence. And that is not what the word hope means in English at all. In fact, I, I, but there's no way around it. Mm-hmm. Hope sounds very positive. So I can't not use it. In fact, I, I even thought about saying you know, confidence in times of fear—that doesn't work, does it? I mean, <laughs> right? You're, you know, you're, you're a communicator. That just—that doesn't have the same resonance. And yet, the word hope, in English, means I'm not sure of it, but I'm hoping for it. Mm-hmm. And that's actually not what the Greek word means. So there's a little bit of a—it's a—it's a problem. It, it, its by the way, it's a little bit like the uh, the word peace in the Bible. As you know, the word peace usually means an as, absence of hostility whereas the if it translates shalom which is the hebrew word is a much richer word it means full flourishing and so we have a translation problem there yeah, uh, but hope means confidence and assurance yes
0: well and, and this gets into the the squabbling i guess within interdenominational and intra denominational aspects of racial reconciliation that it it seems like there's a perfect space for the gospel message and one side doesn't want to hear it. And the other side is, is afraid if you even bring it up, that somehow you're, you're talking about things that aren't appropriate in church. And I just, that frustrates me these days.
1: Oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) It's a big, I mean, I'll, I'll stay there as long as you want, Eric. I mean, this is, this is your, uh, your time. Uh, I guess I would say that the, um, we, at this point, when it says in Romans 12, it says, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renew of your, renewing of your mind. Mm-hmm. It is really saying, um, be careful that you don't let the thought categories of this world uh, control your Christianity. You might think that you're being a Christian, and yet you're really letting the world, rather than the Bible, for example, uh, set the pace for you. And I think when you do have, for example, when you do have in the Bible, um, on the one hand, you've got plenty of discussion in the Bible about caring about the oppressed um, and the poor, caring about them. Uh, You also have plenty in the Bible about the fact that you're not supposed to, uh, uh, you know, in Christ, where there's no Jew or Greek, no male or female, that doesn't mean the distinctions aren't there. I mean, Paul was very, very... Uh, happily Jewish. Mm-hmm. He talks about it. He was proud to be Jewish in Romans 9. So when it says in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, he, it doesn't mean he wasn't proudly Jewish. What he actually meant was, at that point, what he was trying to say is, is the barriers, the cultural barriers have just come down. And when I become, if you're a Greek Christian and you're a Jewish Christian, then the bond between the two of you is stronger than it is uh, between you and a non-Christian Greek or non-Christian Jew. In other words, that becomes the most important thing. So in Christ, we can have this, this uh, overcoming of racial barriers. In Christ, we need to care about the poor. And the danger is the Bible talks about these things, but because the left and the secular left has almost branded those things as this those are, those are our ideas, you just have a lot of conservatives who just don't want to go there right. at all. They don't want to talk about it at all. And at that point, I'm saying, are you really letting the Bible dictate or are you really letting the world's politics dictate? So, and that's where, we, as you know, if you do follow my Twitter, that's where I mm-hmm. fairly often get criticized because just there are certain words you you're not allowed to use the word right, which is silly.
0: Well, and, and, if know, it's a biblical word. You hit on a point, and, and I I tell my audience all the time when people tell me I've changed, and I say I, I have changed. I used to. I am very mindful of the fact now, uh, now that I have kids and my kids are growing up, how when I was a, a young guy in the political movement, I really was moving my faith to try to justify politics. And and as I've gotten older, I've realized, you know, I'm, I'm kind of de- being defined by my politics and not my faith. And going to seminary, I think, was, was really deeply helpful for me to— be able to talk about it. And there just seems to be almost a lack of balance now, uh, even within Christian culture in this country of where's the Christian versus where's the American inside the American church. And I'm not sure we have a lot of people who found the balance right now.
1: No, I don't think so. Uh, here's another way to think about the balance. That's one right there. Another way, and this is here, I'm going to get a little theological on you, but I think, uh, you might appreciate this. Um, so, so for example, if if i if I critique uh, critical race theory as a system, and I, I do, you know as a system, as a as a kind of as as on the paper actual system, I see huge problems. But then you actually have critical race theorists, and these are actual people who are actually never completely consistent, by the way. Mm-hmm. They're not the same thing as the system. Um, and I remember years ago I, I wrote a paper for dr Roger Nicole I don't know if you even know who he was uh, uh, Eric he did actually teach at Orlando RTS reform seminary in his in his uh, old age but he was my professor at Gordon Conwell I wrote a paper for him in which I kept, I would I would wrote a paper and I went in to talk to him about it because he gave me some bad marks on it and I said well the Calvinist and the Arminian as you most of your listeners know Calvinism mm-hmm. believes in predestination. Armenians believe in free will, no predestination. And I was saying the Calvinist would say this, and the Armenian would have to say this, and then the Calvinist would have to say this. He said, "He said you, you. He says you're totally wrong. He says you might say Calvinism says this, Armenianism says this, but the Calvinist can say whatever he wants. He's just a person, <laughs> and he says almost every one of us is actually. Ha-, he said that, I remember he said it in his French accent." Happily inconsistent.
0: <laughs>
1: and he says, he says. so for example, he says, Arminianism, if he, he was a Calvinist, he says Arminianism or Catholicism, he was a Protestant. As a system, I think that they are severely wrong. But he says Catholics and Arminians are just people. And they very often have a mixture of ins- insight. So I can never, he says, I've learned from Arminians even if I think they're inconsistent with their own system. And so the danger here is if you ever listen to somebody who might be a critical race theorist, could I ever learn from them? I think the answer is, yeah, I might learn from them. Why? Because they're people. And people are very often, I would say, as Christians, Eric, you and I are nowhere near as good as our true beliefs should make us. Right. But I would actually say, and this is is actually a doctrine in, in Reformed theology, it's called the doctrine of common grace, but non Christians are never quite as bad as their wrong beliefs should make them because they are made in the image of God. And they, they actually, uh, Romans 2 says they do have consciences that do know something about God's moral law, uh, even if they hold it down somewhat, uh, it says in Romans 1. And therefore, to ever say, on the one hand, I feel like the liberal Christian tends to not be willing to critique critical race theory severely enough as a system. But on the other hand, the conservatives don't want to ever listen to anybody, at all, who has anything to do with it. Almost, they're they're making the mistake that I made that Dr. Nicole called me on, and that is to say, to say you can't learn from a person is really wrong, even if you critique
0: the system. I think that's a that's well said. Uh, before I let you go, I want to move this back to the book. Uh, you know, I, I've I've mentioned to you my wife has cancer. I know you're battling cancer. First of all, I, I'll get uh, yelled at in lots of hate mail if I, if I don't ask you on the radio how you're doing.
1: Well, I've got pancreatic cancer, which is um, uh, the stats are really bad for that. Um, and, and yet, here's the good news. Uh, 80% of pancreatic cancer uh, victims, I guess you could say, 80% die within a year to a year and a half of diagnosis. Now I've already been—I I was diagnosed ten months ago, but I, I've actually uh, had three scans. You know something about this, mm-hmm. Eric? Every three months, and every scan has shown the uh, the chemotherapy has actually shrunk the um, the, pan- the cancer even more, and that is unusual. I've been told by everybody maybe once, maybe twice, but not three times. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, we expected to grow back and we expect my life to probably be shorter than, you know, I was expecting Kathy and I both say at the ages, when we got to 70, we said, I thought we'd feel older <laughs> when we got to 70, you don't feel that old. So to have cancer now isn't, is, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's awful. Right. And yet, uh, it doesn't look like, here's the good news. I, th- I really did think I might be dying within months, but, uh, no, it doesn't look like it. That's all. I've been just saying the first year has been unusually good. Uh, and I'm just, we're just praying that, uh, and I feel pretty good. Good. We're just praying that we keep up, but as you know, that could, that could turn anytime. Right. So,
0: well, and, and that gets me then back to your book, hope in times of fear, uh, and the meaning of, of Easter and the resurrection and the life everlasting. I I have so many people who are atheists who I encounter in social media and they say, how can you believe in a God who would let your wife go through something like that. And and I always try to, as, as graciously as I can, say, well, you know, he went through something really bad himself. Right. He loved us so much, and he conquered it. So I know that sh- my wife is a believer. She'll have eternal life. And I just, I, I sometimes think there's, we get lost as Christians sometimes, I guess, in in Quibbling with each other over which syllables within Orthodoxy each of us are emphasizing, and yeah, you know, we forget yeah. there's such a brilliant, brilliant, hopeful message that we have to share with the world.
1: Yeah, um, and, and another way that—that was a great answer to the the people who are asking you that question. I think that's the first answer, the best one, which is to say, even though we don't understand the reason why my wife or why I have am suffering in this way, we do know. Uh, unlike any other religion. you See, if you don't believe in God, then you what you know what? Your suffering's meaningless. It's just part of strong eat the weak, survival of the fittest, nat- nature's red in tooth and claw. It's meaningless. If there is a God, then you have these other religions, but we have the only religion in which God has actually come into the world uh, in Jesus Christ and suffered with us, showing that he cares about us and showing that he's actually going to do something about it in the end. Now, we don't always know exactly why this or that is happening i'll just give you a real quick example is when i went down to, to washington dc for cancer treatment uh we stayed in the home of uh somebody's home that was not there at the time uh we left some of my books there uh the person uh picked up the books when they got back the owners and these were people who actually weren't that interested in christianity but read the books and got very interested and talked to some of their um uh, They're believing uh, uh, siblings about it, and then the siblings called Kathy and said, I can't believe (laughs) that I'm being asked to talk about this. I'm sitting there saying, you know what, when people say, why did Tim get cancer? And the answer is, I'll bet you there's at least 200 million reasons, good reasons that we have no idea about. Why couldn't there? Maybe there's 300 million because everything's connected to everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing I know is even though I don't know why I've got cancer, I know I don't know the reason why, but I do know what the reason isn't. It isn't that he doesn't love me because he came and he died for me and then rose again to give me an absolute confidence that if I and when I die, I'll be with him.
0: Wow. I, I I think that's a, a perfect stopping point. I, to your point, though, I, I will just share the story with you. I've, I've mentioned this on air before that my wife was given six months to live in 2006, and thankfully they misdiagnosed her, but it was the 2006 misdiagnosis that led the Mayo Clinic to call her 10 years later and say, we think you're going to develop lung cancer or you may have. And and it was the same day I was rushed into the hospital expecting to die. My lungs had filled up with, with uh, blood clots. So my wife is being told she has cancer on the same day. They're telling me I've got probably 24 hours to live. Uh, thankfully, we both survived. But I, I told the story on radio one time, and I had a guy come up to me at an event, and he said, I just want you to know uh, I was diagnosed with cancer I found out my girlfriend and my best friend were having an affair. She was pregnant. And as I was telling her that I had cancer, she interrupted to tell me she was moving in my my boyfriend and I was headed off to commit suicide and heard you tell your story on radio and thought, you know what? My life really isn't that bad. And I feel like, you know, if if there's one turn of strange events in my life to be able to share the story, I might've saved somebody's life just in sharing the story. No, no,
1: that's right. Exactly. And I mean, and you know, that's not the reason. I mean that's right. not a sufficient reason, but just like just like the fact that this woman set, you know might be coming to faith because I left some books there, but what I'm trying to say is cumulatively there could be hundreds right. of millions of reasons, and that's the reason why how silly it is for us to doubt, mm-hmm. especially when the main thing is the cross and the resurrection. That's what convinces me that he's got good reasons for what he's doing.
0: I agree with that. I I could spend all day, but your time is is precious and I've only got so much airtime on radio. So I appreciate (laughs) you so much uh, taking the time to talk to me. And I really did just appreciate the book so much.
1: Thank you.